I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone, and thanks for listening to the podcast. When I first began conducting professionally, there was one man, a promoter or impresario, for whom we all wanted to work. He put on lots of concerts, and you got in front of fantastic orchestras and worked in wonderful venues. The programs were always unashamedly popular, but such was their immense success that I'm convinced these concerts became the gateway for a lot of people to experience classical music for the very first time. And if you're like me, it probably never crossed your mind as to how these concerts are put together. Well, let's hear the fascinating story and journey of one very successful concert promoter. Raymond Gabay, it's lovely to see you. And uh, I I, I think we should uh, explain to our listeners that you're regarded as um, an incredibly successful impresario. Maybe some people need to know what an impresario is. I'm not sure I know myself. It's not a word I would use from choice. I, I started off as a concert promoter and I kept promoting all my working life and producing. And uh, some people use that word impresario. But uh, I, as I say, I find it rather pretentious. I'm a I put on show, concerts, opera, ballet, or I did rather, because I'm I'm retired now. But um, a fascinating world that just grew from nothing, and uh, and I loved it. But impresario, not a word I use. It's maybe a, a term from a bygone age. And of course, you started in in 1966. I read when when you were 20. And I just want to add to that initial inquiry I made of you as to what an impresario is, because allied to that is the fact that in promoting classical music. You're, I'm sure, the only man in living history who's made money out of promoting classical music. So, you know, that's that's where the real achievement, where the real achievement lies. You mean I did what I wasn't supposed to do and it upset a lot of people. And that's good. That's part of, uh, you know, the, the what I'm about, really. I enjoy tweaking a few noses and uh, getting up. You know, at the end of the day, it's about putting on something people want to come and see. And whether it's subsidised or unsubsidised or whatever, you 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 want people to come and enjoy themselves, and there shouldn't really be any argument about uh, you know. I mean, in terms of subsidy, I, I've uh, always passionately passionately spoken out for public sum- subsidy because otherwise there would be no great orchestras, opera, ballet, theatre, whatever you care to name, museums. So you know, I had a little niche in the market, but uh, I'm not I'm not the one to follow to um, get out of paying. You know, to quote, uh, as a way of getting out of paying uh, subsidies. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back a little bit, if we can, because, um, and I have to say, I'm, I I feel remarkably well informed on this uh, uh, compared with other interviews, because you've just brought out a book with a yes. fabulous and totally apt title of "Lowering the Tone and Raising the Roof." I learned yep. so much that, about you. Right. Um, I mean, it's over 20 years ago, not 25 years ago, but I, I did quite a lot of concerts for you in London yes. and, and and Glasgow and Manchester, yes. Birmingham, places like that, which were all great fun. But I didn't really know anything about you. And, yes. and reading your biography is fascinating. So where yeah. do you 
Where do you guys, where do you gubbies come from? Well, and the one thing is, I don't have any British blood in me whatsoever, as far as I can see. Um, my father's side was Sephardic Jewish uh, from uh, uh, what, what, what is loosely now called the Levant, from uh, the mid- part of the Middle East, which is close to uh, modern-day Lebanon, I suppose. But, you know, it's it stretched out from there. And uh, my mother's side, um, her, her, her mother was Ashkenazi Jewish from the Baltic, which was then part of the Russian Empire, and they were driven out by Tsarist pogroms in the 1890s and came to England. And her father, however, was from uh, East Prussia um, and was Lutheran, so I can trace his records back to 1690s or whatever. So it's a bit of a mixture. Uh, You know, a lot of Jewish blood, a a heritage, which I'm very proud of that uh, Sephardic heritage and my mother's side as well. So it made a combination that uh, it's what I am. Mm. And you grew up in in uh, the Golders Green area, North London. In, in Golders Green, is there anywhere else? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to say that uh, I, I spent um, um, many happy times in in Golders Green with uh, lots of musician friends there. I, yeah. I yes. actually used to uh, conduct a, a community orchestra in in the old Sobel Centre. Uh, after that, before right. it was uh, yeah. before it was taken yeah. down, and uh, there are yes. some of my my fondest <laughs> yes. memories. Um, yeah. But y- y- your family, your immediate family, your father, I think in particular, they were very interested in music. And did you yes. get some of the promoting blood from your father? That's what I want to know. No, I mean his his only uh, attempt at promoting. He formed a thing called the Mozart Lovers. Uh, operatic society and put on Il Seraglio at St Pancras Town Hall and and lost lost my money. But he sort of gave me the taste for it. Um, but I was never very good as a practical musician. I fa- I failed grade one piano. My mum was a very good pianist. My dad was a was a good violinist, and there was always music in the house. But being a little boy, you know, I sort of pooed it all. But it, it obviously washed over me and my. Um, my mother's mother and and, and one of her uh, aunts were, were were piano teachers. She had another um, aunt who was a singer, who I remember. And um, so there was obviously, you know, music in the family. And back to Golders Green, because at Golders Green, we had this wonderful theatre called the Hippodrome, still standing, but uh, stopped putting on shows there in 1968 and became for a while the home of the BBC Concert Orchestra. But while I was there as a youngster, there were different shows there every week. So when I was very young, I was taken to the pantomime, and, and uh, you had to go on stage. It was very girl, you know, with a whole lot of other children and do whatever you had to do in pantomimes. And later on, there was uh, Doily Carter Opera Company coming every year, Gilbert and Sullivan. There was some ballet, a little bit of opera, lots of plays, lots of musicals. And my grandma took me up to the gods uh, on Saturdays And goodness knows what I saw, but it was two and sixpence in old money, which is um, uh, 12 and a half P and less for children. And we sat on wooden benches and we saw everything and uh, operetta, musicals. And she loved all that. And so it just was part of my life. I just thought it was wonderful. You dismissed your your father's attempts at... at, um... At being a promoter, but I don't know anybody else who had a dad who tried to put on Il Serario, uh, whether he whether he made money or not. So I I think um, it was in the tea leaves that that's that's where you were heading. Raymond. It was there. Now, do you feel as though you um, you were a child of your time, or do you think you were you were fortunate to be working in an age that was 
to my eyes, at least more receptive to classical music than it is today. Well, I think I think both those things really. A child of my times in that I took advantage of the opportunities that were there. But I think you are right that um, in those days when I did start, there was a sort of network around the country of uh, music societies and clubs and organisations. And I started off... Um, uh, through a lucky break with what was called the Northeast Arts Association, which was the first regional arts association based in uh, Newcastle upon Tyne. And I can't remember quite what, how or why, but I got to know Neil Duncan, who was the deputy director. And through him, he said, you know, we've been looking for um, a Gilbert and Sullivan evening and the one professional group that do this, they're very expensive, you know, our members can't afford this. Can you put something together? Um, which I did, which was where it all started. Um, three or four singers and a, and a pianist. And we, with the Gilbert and Solomon, it was, it was four singers. And we trooped around um, in the northeast, uh, wonderful places, you know, all around Newcastle and along the coast and, and up towards um, Berwick and so on, down towards uh, Whitby and not quite as far, far as Scarborough. It was brilliant. And I loved it. And it was the open road. And I was working with really good artists. I mean, one of the tenors I employed in those very early days was Philip Langridge, who went on to a brilliant mm. career. And there were many others like that. And I don't know why they trusted a 20-year-old a lad, uh, but they did because I paid them money. <laughs> and, you know, they, were, they were up <laughs> for it, and I loved it. You know, we got one... I always remember we got to Bridlington in the middle of February. This would be 1967, soon after I started. And we got there, and the sea was crashing over the wall by the stage door. You know, we were getting sprayed. And I thought this was wonderful. And the little theatre was was lit by gas. And the entertainment's manager, was a lovely guy, said, you know, we never do anything in the winter normally, but you wrote and said you had this. And we've advertised it. We've got 500 people coming. You know, he was absolutely thrilled. Wow. And, you know, it was all lit with gas lights and so on. And next morning, um, uh, going on, wherever we were going on to, I got up and opened the curtains to the, the bedroom. And there was the North Sea and the waves crashing and so on. I thought, this is the life for me. I like this, you know, my own boss doing my own thing. Do you think that was um, a, a golden age, as it were? I mean, you couldn't do that now, could you? No, no, it was of its time because, you know, tastes vary. People would want something much uh, more elaborate now. But it was what was what was wonderful about it. It was the age of Jenny Lee as the first minister for the arts, appointed by mm -hmm. Harold Wilson. And we'd never had an arts minister before, which whatever she was, well, the title was, that is effectively what she was. And so she encouraged local authorities to spend, they could spend what was called the sixpenny rate, which was sixpence in the pound in old money. So one fortieth of the rates could go on culture, libraries, um, uh, events, uh, entertainment, all, all sorts of things. And she really pushed that. And so lots of places started to build little halls and theatres and so on. And I was there with my with my shows, with my three or four singers, the pianists knocking on their doors. And, and that was where the market opened up. So I think that was very much of its time. And I loved it. And it was great. And they they loved it, the, the venues, because I would bring things that in those days would fill the places. Uh, and, and they really felt, you know, it was cost effective. It, 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 it actually worked. There must have been quite an element of of risk involved in this, in, in all of your planning, in all of your thinking. You say you started when you were 20. And I read in the book that you had a loan from your dad of, of 50 pounds, which in those days, yes. that was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. Um, That's a lot of money. Yeah. So, and I mean, 50 quid from the bank. 
Ah, so a total of £100 you started with. It's a nice round number. Well, you see, most of these places um, would give you a fee or a guarantee. So um, I could make money out of it. I mean, the fee, to start with, the fee for the Gilbert Sullivan evening was (laughs) £84, 80 guineas. And, um, you know, I could pay the artist and I'd be left with a few quid at the end of it. And, you know, I'd be doing this one day after another sometimes. So I'm a sort of reasonably self-sufficient, living at home still. Um, And it was just as wonderful to actually, you know, have money in my pocket. And um, then in 1967, I... I took three dates at the Palace Pier Brighton because uh, a friend had said, oh, you, you know, I don't know, and he got an introduction. And a guy was putting on a summer show with Tommy Trinder and, and I don't know who else. And so he said, yes, he'd take the, these three Sundays, but I'd have to do them on shares rather than um, any sort of guarantee. And I'd have to do the press advertising. So this was all rather new to me, but I did it. And we, I went down there. I thought it was such fun. And I sat in the box office because they sold most of the tickets on the day. And the theatre manager, lovely lady, she was the only one there doing it. So I went to help her, you know, because this was my money coming over the counter. It was very exciting. And the, the tickets were um, 12 and 6, 10 shillings, 7 and 6 and 5 shillings in old money. But the secret was when people said, how much are the tickets? I would say 12 and 6, 10 shillings, 10 and 6, 5 shillings. And they'd say, I beg your pardon, I'd say, 12 and 6, 10 shillings, and they wouldn't, they'd be too embarrassed to ask a third time. So we, we, we moved them up to the upper prices. I was learning lessons. And I, and I made, on the Gilbert and Sullivan evening, uh, which had, I, I think John Haddle Nash was my star. Back to him in a moment. But, um, uh, and we, you know, four things of pounds. I made 150 quid. I thought this was incredible. And so as a result of that, I, I was able to go to America and start knocking on doors. But this was, you know, exciting way that these things happened. And uh, out of the blue, you know, you could suddenly make money out of this. And um, wow, I, I did I enjoy it. Blimey. <laughs> is, is risk something that uh, forms part of your your personal makeup, and I, I wouldn't ever have taken that sort of risk. I have taken risks, and we've all taken risks, but you must have lived a whole life of it. Yes, I know. No, I mean, it, you, you know, you take risks. It, it, largely, I was working with my own money, and um, uh, so it was, you know, money that I built up in the business and so on. But do you know what, um, uh, Andrew, this is not about money, actually, and this it may surprise people, I don't know. I did it because I loved it and I enjoyed it and I could I could I could make a living out of it. And the fact that in the end I made money and I lived very well out of it and I was able to sell the company, that was a bonus. It was never my aim. If I had wanted to make money, I would have done things in a different way. I just loved it. It was something very special. And uh, I'd recommend to any young entrepreneurs, go out and do it, you know, try and make it work. Yes, circumstances. A different and people won't be able to do it the way that I did because that was the market as it was at the time. But there are always opportunities of one sort or another, and that feeling of freedom is just is intoxicating. It's wonderful. Hmm. I'm sensing um, an aspect in your personality, a sense of mischief, Raymond. Um, <coughs> well, do you recognise yes. that? I do. Yes. I mean, I think that uh, you know, life is very boring if you don't stir things up a bit or tweak the odd nose or whatever. And so, yes, I've done one or two things in my time. I wouldn't, I look back on them. When I was writing the book and writing some of these things down, I thought, oh dear, how did I do that? (laughs) Well, there were were times when um, you were having to 
tweak the noses, as you put it, of uh, people in very high places. And it seems yes. like you nearly always came off on top of those things, maybe yes. because they were they were rather pompous people by the sound yes. of it in, in their own uh, in their own worlds. Um, yes. But b- give me a situation other than mumbling the price of the lowest tickets. <laughs> they felt a sense of mischief was going to expedite the situation or or, or um, resolve something that was yes. was irritating you. Well, I mean, there are many. I mean, there's one in the book that I mentioned with the um, one of the, it was uh, uh, Georgian State Dance Company going to Manchester, and the the theatre um, suddenly decided that uh, they, they they didn't want to give me sharing terms, which they had originally said they would, and they wanted me to rent the theatre, and I thought that was appalling, and it was right in the middle of the turn. It was three important dates, so I thought. Well, and in those days we had telex machines and nobody will remember those now, but they punched out a tape um, and you then fed this through. You typed it out, they punched the tape out, you fed the through to the number that you wanted it to go through and it came out at the other end as a punch tape, which they could then transcribe. And so I sent this and you, you could actually um, make it appear that it came from somewhere else. So I made it appear that this tape I sent to the Manchester Evening News I made it appear that it had come from the uh, Novosti Press, the Russian state agency, press agency in London, saying that they were very upset and insulted by the way the theatre had behaved and that henceforth no more no more Russian artists or, or sportsmen would be going to Manchester. And within half an hour, I had a call from the theatre director saying, this is all a terrible mistake. Of course we want you to come. Of course we want you to give you sharing terms and so on. So it works. But I have to say, looking back, back at it now, cold, when I say it like that, God, I think I had a, a, a bit of a chutzpah to do that and, and, and not without risk. But there we are. That's how life is. And then you moved on, of course, throughout your your promoting career um, to, to move away from these small things that were traveling around the Northeast, these Gilbert and Sullivan evenings, and it gradually expanded. And when I was talking about being a child of your time, of course, yes. it coincided with uh, opportunities that occurred at the Royal Albert Hall, the huge yes. venue in South Kensington, yes. and the opening of the Barbican Center. Yes. And then you taking advantage of competition between the Festival Hall and the Barbican and the various orchestral politics that were going on there. And yes. Ex- explain some of that, because that was a remarkably successful time for you. Well, the, the Barbican was just tremendous, 1982. Um, I first went round three years earlier, um, got in touch with Henry Ron, the director who'd been in situ for many years, waiting for the place to open, and the city had threatened to cancel it on three occasions. And um, anyway, I went round with him, and it was all, you know, the roof was on and everything, you could see everything, and there were sort of lights strung up on wires and so on. And we put on hard hats and um, um, uh, Wellington boots. And uh, I went around and I thought, I, you know, there's never going to be anything like this in my lifetime again. I'd like to be part of this. So I said to Henry, um, I, I want to do some shows here. And eventually they opened in 1982 in March. So it's um, 40 years next year. And I had dates for uh, April. I had the Easter weekend and... Um, couple of dates in May, I think, from memory. And people said, you're mad going to the Barbican at Easter in the city. Nobody's going to go there and so on, you know. But I, I hung on in. And um, we started, the first show was an opera gala with Josephine Barstow, I remember. And second one was a Beethoven concert with the RPO and um, Norman Del Mar and Christina Ortiz. And then I did the Strauss Gala on Easter Monday. And 
Tickets went on sale, I think, in February, and I rang the box office, and they gave me some figures which were, were okay, but they weren't exciting. And then a couple of days later, I rang again, and they shot up, you see. So I said, can I talk to the box office manager, which was, um, uh, Peter Skinner, who became a, a dear friend of mine? And he said, I said, is this right? He said, oh, yes, no. He said, we've had bags of unopened mail, and we've been working mm. through them, and, you know, this is what... And, of course, the, the credit cards were not really that much used in those days. And so it all was, um, uh, you know, um, uh, checks coming through the post and so on. And so they had to process all that. And suddenly the thing took off. And I was doing extra dates, I was selling out, and uh, there was matinees on, and this and that, can I have more dates? And suddenly, well, in the first year, I did 50 concerts between April and March of 83. Um, and they sold 90-something percent. And in, in 1983 itself, uh, the year, um, I put on over 130 performances, including some lunchtimes, where one of which actually sold out. We had people queuing out of the building. So it was just intoxicating and wonderful and very upsetting for the <laughs> resident orchestra and so on. But, you know, these things... Um, uh, it was of its time, and, and no, would they like me there now doing 130 shows a year? No, would I like to be there? No, you know, it was it was the moment, it was the time to do it, and it was fantastic. And the 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 honeymoon, uh, you know, continued for uh, two or three years, four years. Uh, it was great. It was wonderful. It was such a wonderful way of building the business. And at that time, I think 70 percent of my business was based on the Barbican. And then, of course, you embarked on this crazy notion of doing opera in the round and at the, at the Albert Hall. And for folks who um, want to get a visual image of, of that, it's like a, the inside of a giant cake, isn't it really, that hall? Um, massive yes. space. How on, earth did you, how on earth did you do it? Well, I mean, you know, all credit to the hall because they encouraged me. I, I started going back there um, uh, in the late 80s, because when the Barbican opened, it had taken uh, the, the spotlight away. The Albert Hall needed product. And I again, it was good timing. And I started the Classical Spectacular, which is still going. And, uh, you know, had this notion of lights, music, or classic after classic after classic. And, you know, it had to add more dates. The thing was selling out and so on. And so the relationship with the hall um, became very close. And Patrick Ducar, who was the, the director at the time, was encouraging me to do things. And they invited me to see a performance by George Benson, which was performed in the round, and he was on a revolving uh, stage. In the, and I suddenly had this thought, golly, you know, what about um, doing opera in the round? And so that was 19, yeah, 1995. 1996 was the centenary of La so I said, we should do an album, you know, as one does. And, and he said, oh, what a good idea. So we put this together and opera in the round and we announced five performances and we had another five up our sleeve because, you know, to make economic sense. And actually we, we got the run of 10 shows. They did very well. Critics were a bit sniffy. Did we get it right? No, it was the first attempt. Second year we did Carmen and we got a very distinguished director, um, a former director of the Edinburgh Festival, and um, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it didn't feel comfortable. It did okay because it was calming. And I suppose there was a feeling after that, oh, golly, what next? Well, Patrick had arranged that we would meet David Freeman, the director, and he never turned up. And so we, looking, talking to various other people, went, 
quite the way down the line with another one. And then David got in touch and he apparently had toothache and had to go to the dentist and emergency treatment. I don't know. Anyway, so he kept well, rather sort of um, um, against my better judgment. I, I said, oh, yes, I'll, I'll come and meet him at the hall with Patrick. And suddenly, you know, it was like the scales falling from my eyes. It was like the, 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 the road to Damascus. He started talking sense. He talked talk how he was going to do it, what he was going to do, and, and how he would make it work. And after that, he got uh, David Roger, the designer, and they, were, they, they, they had this idea of creating a Japanese water garden. Wow, well, I could see the, the, the potential in that in terms of the press and so on. And so we flooded the Albert Hall with 65,000 litres of water to create this water garden, which looked wonderful. But it also meant that you had walkways over it to a central point where Butterfly's house was. So you concentrated the action. The, the, the action. It was very well thought out, beautifully lit by Andrew Bridge. And by this time, uh, we, we'd got the sound sorted out. And, and, and um, uh, it, it really was so much. And, you know, it, it was a fantastic success. Um, and there were rave reviews and um, people coming up to me on the first night and congratulating me. I suddenly thought, we've done it. In the meantime, we'd started with uh, English National Ballet the previous year with Derek Dean Swan Lake, which is still going. Um, again, in the round 65 swans, a company of 130, uh, real spectacle. And so uh, the operas had a tremendous run there. Butterfly was revived many times. Uh, Carmen, David Freeman's Carmen was, was great. Uh, Aida, we did Cavalier Rusticana and Pagliacci and um, Golly, uh, La Boheme, uh, again in a different production with Francesca Zambello. Uh, they, they were really great. But, uh, you know, the, the ideas need investment. They need to be brought on. They need to be moved on. When I sold the company, um, I was still associated for a, for a while, but, I, well, you know, that was part of the deal. But they wouldn't invest anymore. And um, so the opera you know, sort of tailed away, and I, lo- I kind of lost interest. And, um, you know, the Christmas festival that we'd done uh, was fantastically successful, so much so that when I'd gone, the Albert Hall took it over themselves. Um, and they said to me, uh, very um, uh, open about all this, that whilst I was there, they wouldn't have done that. But, you know, when I no longer had an association with my old company, they had no hesitation in uh, to take it, doing what they wanted to do. And so the ballet has gone direct to the hall. I had a relationship with the ballet, which was very strong, as I did with the hall. I would have sensed if they were uncomfortable with anything. But, um, you know, it, all, it, it didn't all grind to a halt. But it's certainly, uh, you know, considering I was doing up to about 100 shows a year there, it's, uh, you know, a... a, a fraction small fraction of that nowadays well 100 shows a year in a really large venue and you spoke about relationships there that must have been key to all of your work and of course with the london orchestras the royal philharmonic who you worked with a lot and the the other orchestras um there i imagine was some at times friendly at times not so friendly tension because you were you were using them, you were engaging them and uh, making money out of it. And of course, they're struggling with with uh, government subsidy and whatever still to make any sort of headway in terms of profit breaking, even whatever. But but what I wanted to come to um, leading from the opera in the round stuff is what were the tensions like with the Royal Opera, with Covent Garden when you when you started being successful with your opera? 
Um, well, of course, I'd worked with the Royal Opera at uh, Wembley with Kirandot, and um, uh, we'd put it on there for 10 shows. It lost a lot of money. Fortunately, I had some backers in for that, so that was all right. I remember going, it was Telegraph and EMAP, who are a publishing group, so um, it wasn't quite me on my own being exposed, and they knew how the tickets were selling. I had to go to this meeting afterwards, and I said, I <laughs> don't think they ever forgave me. I said, well, there's good news and bad news. I said, the good news is we've lost under a million pounds. The bad news is, but not by much. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the Royal Opera had, but they, they had everything paid for. Uh, they had no risk at all. I wanted to continue uh, in some way, but I indicated that we'd have to have some sort of more equitable basis to work on. And I was very disappointed uh, in the annual report, in the annual report covering that year, that the uh, chairman of the board never even mentioned Wembley, um, and I thought that was uh, really sad. But it says it all. Um, so when when we started at the Albert Hall, well, we had to get some publicity going. So um, Patrick Ducar uh, and I went to a lunch with what were then all the arts correspondents, which barely exist nowadays, and we had wonderful uh, press. Uh, a representative in Peter Thompson, who was absolutely the best. Uh, he's still around, but he's not very well, but he was the greatest. And I could tell you stories about him. They got all these people together and we're sitting at the lunch and I started to talk quite frankly and I could see Patrick at the other end getting quite uncomfortable. Then he got up and moved to work. He said he had to go. <laughs> and I carried on. The next day, the papers were full of, you know, my criticisms of the Royal Opera House, and they got angry, and then there were radio interviews and so on. So it got really good publicity going for La um, <coughs> Boheme. And um, later on, um, I, I put in an application to run the Royal Opera House, a corporate, a corporate application on behalf, of, on behalf of my company. And Sir Colin Southgate, who's only just died, he who said famously about not wanting to sit next to anyone in in, in, in shorts and dirty trainers or something inappropriate like that. Uh, he never even replied to my application, but I got a lot of heavyweight support. And, um, you know, articles started to appear in the paper because I produced a 12-point plan. I mean, it, was, it wasn't just out of the blue. And I, I said, you know, if you've got something like La Boheme, which you know is very popular, why don't you put it on for two weeks and double cast it or whatever? You don't have to move the scenery every day. You know, this, this nonsense of the opera and the ballet company um, being side by side, having to move everything every day for rehearsals, performances, the other company coming in. Well, no wonder it costs millions. So I, I came up with this idea. I, I don't know. I thought it made sense. And a lot of other, I got heavyweight support. But um, in the end, no, they just carried on. But, but um, you know, they, Jeremy Isaacs had gone by then. And uh, um, on his name, the guy around the BBC came in and, and did a really, really good job. And so they stabilised the whole thing. But in one year, I think they gave away about up to one and a half million in redundancy payments to three different um, uh, uh, former chief executives. <laughs> it's pretty awful. <laughs> yeah, you, this um, for, for those uh, listeners of a certain age, this sounds just like when Jack Charlton applied to be the England uh, football manager. Now, it's what everybody wanted, but it was yes. never going to happen. Yes, yes, yes. Well, is it he I can see looking down behind you, or am I mixing him up with somebody else? There's a photo behind you that my eyesight not very good, but yes. Yeah. That one? 
No, that's that's my conducting teacher. That's a guy called oh, Ilya Musin. Yes, I, know, I know who Musin is. Yeah, yeah. Well, he looks remarkably yeah. like one of the, from here, like one of the Charlton brothers <laughs> when you mentioned it. But no, yeah. I know Musin, and and, uh, and and wonderful, wonderful character. Yeah. So that's what happened with the Royal Opera. You know, yeah. the, the Royal Opera. Um, but as I say, they they you know, Alex Beard now is super, and I think runs it really well. And Heather Walker, who used to be at the Albert Hall, my great great friend, she's in there now. Uh, on a very senior level. So, no, they've got great people there now. Amidst all this, what on earth led you to diversify in your presentations? And when I say diversify, I'm just going off at a, at a really sharp tangent. You started to put on cricket evenings. And what I mean by that is um, getting the great and the good of the cricket world to, um, to sit and have a natter to a huge audience about careers and stuff like that absolutely i mean that was because uh we had all these dates at the barbican in the christmas festival and matinees as well i wanted to do something non-musical and somebody said why don't you do something about cricket in midwinter and you know i approached brian johnston who was the doyen of cricketing uh, commentators but also uh, as, as i discovered uh, a performing artist, Monquet, I like nothing better than to go out in front of an audience. So he jumped at this. So we did this show at the Barbican, and I thought, well, we'll price it at one price so that we can sell from the front row back, you know, up um, if it does well. And in the end, we nearly sold out. And Brian came there and he did the warm up and, um, you know, did all the old jokes. Uh, you know, um, I, I made the mistake of saying the other day, um, can you all hear me? And somebody said, yes, I can, but I'd willingly swap with somebody who can't. And, and, and then he'd go on and he'd say, I'm wearing my Raymond Gabay suit today, small checks. And, and all this was going on, and the audience <laughs> loving it. And he had these um, old cricketers with him, and, and, and we had lots of wine backstage. And, and so it's just took off. And so I sat down with him afterwards, um, uh, a few days later, and we sketched out, you know, that we would do a tour and we'd do more dates. And we used to go off on this um, a, a little mini mini minibus with airline-style seats that you could recline in. And I discovered that he loved Muscadet and smoked salmon sandwiches. So we arranged to have a big supply. And after about half an hour, he'd say, Gubbers, because he called me Gubbers and the cricketing words of the cricketing fraternity. Gubbers, shall we break open the smokers and the muskers, which was the signal to bring all this stuff out? And it was like that for the rest of the day, you know. And I had to, I had to feed them and look after them. And I, like, you know, this wonderful three or four cricketers following me into these hotels, the restaurants, and everything. And that I just had to pay for everything. It was most wonderful experience because uh, working with people like that with passion and interest and Brian, in especially who knew exactly how to get the best out of everyone. It's just the same promotional skills, you know, skill as a promoter that you'd use for concerts. And, and, and working with great people, Raymond, working with great working people. With great people. That, that is the secret. They, they, they were the best. And they were fantastic. And I look back on that with enormous interest, you know, and mm. pride. And, and, and uh, yeah, absolutely. So for um, folks uh, in this country, in the States, uh, and, and non-English listeners, um, the idea of cricket in the first place is something that's very, not only hard to explain, but hard to appreciate. The idea of cricket on the radio must be something from another planet to most people. But Brian Johnson managed to make cricket on the radio so captivating, so exciting. And 
it's a long time since um, the uh, uh, part of this world, I know. But I, I still love listening to that. I'm not a great cricket aficionado, but always entertained by him, especially with all the cakes he had delivered. He was always saying, oh, must must thank Mrs. So-and-so from uh, Swindon, who sent this delightful fruitcake. I mean, what on earth has that got to do with cricket? But it was part of the the English way of life at the time. That, that, that was the, the aura that he had and the way that uh, he got on with people. He made a subject that not everybody knew about or loved into something really interesting. And he'd had a wonderful life. He'd been a war hero. He was in the Grenadier Guards. He won the Military Cross. Um, he was a super guy. And uh, I, I was just, I felt very pr- privileged to work with him. Mm-hmm. And speaking of great people, throughout your 50-something year career, you must have met some of the most fascinating people in the world, not just in the arts, but in, in life in general. Who, who stands out to you? Well, um, I mean, it sounds like a, a, a bit of a cliche, but, but Princess Diana was, 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 was lovely because she was really interested. And I met her on a number of occasions. Um, she came uh, at the Albert Hall, she came to the first night of La Boheme, and then uh, supporting the charity that we were doing it in Adolf. And then the, the following year, she was the patron of English National Ballet. And so she came and the wonderful photo that was taken of her with the 65 swans was for the front page of the Times, but whizzed around the world and got us fantastic publicity. But, but beyond that, she actually knew the names of, of a lot of the dancers and she was interested. And she said, could she stay for the dress rehearsal? So we said, of course. And uh, we said, where would you like to go? And she pointed up to the Royal Box and she said, oh, I'll go up there. And she sat in the Royal Box. There was a, a terrible hoo-ha the next day because apparently that's the personal gift of the Queen and you can't, you know, just use it. And I think she'd quite deliberately done that. Uh, but she she was very attractive and, and, and uh, she, she made a huge difference to the arts and I think her her death um, you know left a big hole there I've met various other royal patrons and they all go through the motions but nobody had the passion and the love that she had for what she was doing what about life lessons you've learned from all of these decades in the business some interaction with artists and uh, those on the periphery of the arts who um, who deemed themselves to be uh, part of the whole process well, I think you treat everybody with respect. You, particularly, you, t- you know, I'm often asked, oh, you know, what about the prima donnas? What about the, you know, people that... Uh, but you don't really find them. I think as long as you know your job and know how to treat people, you very quickly know if somebody wants to be left aside backstage or in their room and they want quiet and they don't want you nattering, uh, or if they want to engage or if they want to drink or whatever. You know, you learn that. And, and that's part of the... Uh, part of what it is to be a, a producer and a promoter. Um, and I have enormous respect for all artists because at the end of the day, and you know this, you're going out on the stage, you're alone, and you've got to do it, whatever it is you've got to do, and people are watching you, and uh, and it's lonely. And, and mm. so I respect that. I know that. I understand that. And uh, I've always got on very well. You know, people say, well, I, I'd love to read the unexpurgated edition of your book. And I said, well, there isn't going to be one because what you see is what you get. And if you want um, if you want a, a bit of a, a, a subtext, there is one there some of the time. You'll get things if you want to. But, uh, because I, but I've never been a, a one to uh, cover up my feelings or what I think. You know, I've got, I, I think that's the best way of dealing with things. Hmm. Um, and um, so I've been quite frank in the book. Without, I never wanted to put the knife into anyone or, or do anything beyond what, what was just reasonable and fair comment. 
No, but it's very obvious at times where you're leaving uh, the reader with the capacity to read between the lines, let's say. <laughs> and um, some stories seem deliberately truncated so that so that we can perhaps <laughs> there. And I have to I have well, to say I've enjoyed that aspect of it. <laughs> well, that's good. You know, I, I I wrote it as it is, and yeah, I left out a lot. Um, sometimes because I forgot. But will there be a volume two then, Raymond? <laughs> if I got enough time to sit down somewhere and uh, put some more thoughts together, uh, it would be a pleasure for me to do that. Whether anyone would want to read it, I've no idea. But uh, it's been fun. What's been nice about this, uh, I've never written a book before, is the feedback I've been getting from people, some, you know, coming out of the woodwork after years and years who I'd forgotten all about. And um, that was very nice to be in touch and in contact with them. Yeah. Well, I've spoken to so many friends who've who've enjoyed it and been recommending it. Um, a oh, friend good. I spoke to a month or so ago, maybe even two months ago, said how much he'd enjoyed it. And it wasn't available in the States at that time. So I, oh, I stuck my order into Amazon and uh, yes. and I was waiting for it to arrive. I'm not here to to advertise other people's wares and materials, but I have to recommend lowering the tone and raising the roof to anybody who's um, who's got uh, a few hours to spend reading some hilarious and really uh, revelatory stories. But I want to wrap this lovely interview up, if I can, by asking you, well, make a choice from these, these two questions, see which one you want to answer. Um, so either, what is the one major thing in your life you'd have done differently, or what's the one thing you've done that you're most proud of? Well, I can answer both of those because things I would have done differently. I mean, hindsight is a great thing and uh, you can all look back and whatever. But I'm also a great uh, fatalist. I believe, you know, what happens, happens. And so I don't look back on anything really and say, oh, I wish I'd have done this or I wish I'd done that. I've been blessed with great working with great artists, doing something I've enjoyed doing in an ambience that I really love. With, with, with my children, grandchildren now, and my late brother's grandchildren in France keeps me fully occupied. Uh, there's nothing I, I look back on um, uh, with, with um, longing or regret. <clears throat> and in terms of things that I'm most proud of, wow, you know, I can look back on that, that career and there's lots of things that I can, can pick out. Um, wonderful artist, Victor Borger, was the most mm. marvellous person, you know, just as a person, Yehudi yes. Menuhin. Uh, was a great, great um, uh, artist. I mean, at the time I was working with him, he was no longer a great violinist. But my God, did he have passion and energy and commitment. And, and those things were, were, were really, really um, important. But do you know what? When I, I, I think I put this in the book. When I look back, I think back to those early days going around the northeast or wherever it was. I got to know the, the whole of the UK very well. Um, going around and, and traveling to these little places and finding the the hall and, and the setting up and so on, uh, putting on our concert. And in those days, you know, if you announced a, a Viennese evening with Marion Studholm or whatever, you'd get an audience in these places, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan evening with John Heddle Nash. And that was, to me, that was fantastic because that was something I'd created and it was working and I was young and full of energy and, and, and wanting to move on. And I look back on those days with, with enormous pride um, yes, of course, I look back on Albert Hall and the Barbican and the Festival Hall and the Symphony Hall Birmingham, which, as I put in the book, if they could tow that to London, would be the best concert hall of all if we, we had something like that. But what we have isn't bad. But, you know, when I look at the first night of uh, Swan Lake or, 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 or Madame Butterfly, 
Um, when I look at, uh, you know, the Itzhak Perlman 50th birthday, four concerts, eight concertos, uh, those sort of things, I, you know, they, they make me really happy and proud. But, um, you know, I, I could bore you to tears going through all this stuff. And, oh, what about, what about this? What about that? They were all lovely. They were all great experiences. You learned from all of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. I'm still, even though I'm retired, I'm learning every day uh, and enjoying it. Well, Raymond, I don't quite know what retirement is for you because you're obviously, you look wonderful. You're very vibrant. Um, you've got so many <laughs> ideas flying around all the time. I, I, I'm, I want to find out in, if I'm around in 20 years' time to find out what you've really <laughs> been up to in this, in this so-called <laughs> retirement of yours. Um, I wonder if there's a, an alter ego that's operating in the background there and, and other things. Well, you, you know what it is? I think, every, you know, that, that expression, every dog has its day. And everyone has their time. And I was a young Turk uh, when the Barbican opened and I was, you know, um, upsetting people by doing this and doing that, things that you're not supposed to do. But I've, I haven't grown any wiser, but I've grown older and I've done an awful lot of things. So I don't have the quite the energy that I had, but I don't have quite the ideas that I had. Or my ideas, I, maybe I do, but they're, they're lost in a bit of a time warp now. And it's time to give the next generation, it's moment. And I think that's very important that you know when to step aside. I I get asked, um, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, for a lot of advice, and I'm very happy if I can help people. um, uh, But I no longer think of myself as, you know, in the in the forefront of all this. And I rather enjoy looking at it from the sideline. Um, And I'm Looking forward, next year the Albert Hall are, are doing a concert in, in to celebrate my long association with them, which I'm really looking forward to in, in May. And that, it was going to be in, originally in May of this year. That's why the book came out then. So we'll sort of have another go at pushing the book next May. But I, I think that's really, really nice and makes me very happy. And I shall go there and I shall glow with pride because I shall have all my grandchildren there, please God, and, and my, my great nieces and nephews from France and so on and everything. And it'll be it'll be a great celebration. And I should look at that hall and think, yeah, this is somewhere really special. And yeah, I made my mark there and I did it. And now let's see who else is doing what. That's how it goes. Well, Raymond, I'll always remember you and think of you as being the man who brought masses of classical music, great classical music to the masses, showed them they could enjoy it, showed them they could go to an evening of classical music and have a thoroughly good time. And I'm forever grateful to you for doing that, not just for me, but for everybody else who's experienced it. So, Raymond Gabe, thank you very much and happy retirement to you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. So lovely. Thanks a lot. One of the great characters of the classical music business over the last nearly 60 years. Now, a number of you have been asking about the music I use on this podcast. Well, it's from Elgar's amazing symphonic study, Falstaff, in a recording I made a few years ago with the terrific National Orchestra of Wales. And the section you're hearing now is the gorgeous dream interlude. Continuing that link, my next guest is the engineer from the recording and one of the greats of that business, Simon Eden. So, watch out for the next episode. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point.